from 89.7 WUWN, Milwaukee's NPR, this is Lake Effect. I'm Joy Powers. Today we'll tell you about a new childcare and co-working space for parents in Milwaukee. Then we'll look at a new memoir about a family's journey through mental illness in an era of silence. We had a lot of fun, but we also had a lot of sorrow, and that was born of the fact that there was a substantial amount of mental illness in my family. Plus, we'll tell you about Dr. Kate Newcomb and how she served the Northwoods before there was a hospital in the area. Her nickname became the Angel on Snowshoes. People just came to know that whatever the situation, somehow, Dr. Kate would get there. All of that is coming up on Lake Effect. But first, here are today's headlines. is Lake Effect from 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. I'm Joy Powers and thank you so much for joining us. Typically, parents of young children might drop them off at daycare before heading to work in an office. But with the increase in remote work, childcare looks different for some. A new business in Milwaukee's Brewers Hill neighborhood combines co-working space for remote workers with on-site daycare for their young children. It's the second branch of the Chicago-based Le Village, which has been open since 2021. WUWM education reporter Emily Files speaks with Kelly Overton, Le Village Brewers Hill owner, about this innovative childcare model. Tell me about the story of this place and how it came to be. Yes, so we we had just had our son uh, in 2021. And most places with childcare in Chicago were either closed or full. And so we were really scrambling to figure out what we were going to do to be able to both work remotely and find care for our son. And we're kind of getting down to the wire. We weren't hearing back from the daycares that we were on the list for. And we just happened to be driving down the street, saw the sign for the village in Chicago, uh, emailed, it had a tour the next day and the next week we were signed up and in that space and it was absolutely incredible it was the support system that i didn't think i even knew that i needed at the time and being a new parent can feel incredibly isolating and especially being a new mom uh and so you know i was struggling with postpartum depression i was struggling with imposter syndrome I didn't know how I was going to go back to work and do both things. And I couldn't believe that a place like La Village existed that gave me the opportunity to do both. And there were people around me that were also doing the same thing and lifting each other up. And uh, it was just wonderful. Um, so we moved to Milwaukee not too long after that to be closer to my husband's family. And I love being in Milwaukee and I love this city and you know, we got married here. We knew we wanted to be here for a long time and the pandemic kind of gave us the push that we needed to come up here, but I didn't really know how I was going to live without the village. So we decided um, to work with Danny, the founder in Chicago to open one here. And now I'm hoping to bring that same experience to parents in the Milwaukee area where they can have the career that they want and be the parents that they want all within the same space. Tell me about like how the model works here. Yes, yeah, so we are we're a membership model. 
Uh, and the way that it works is we have a co-working, general co-working side of the package of the membership. Uh, it's $200 a month for open space. We call it hot seat working where you just come, you can set up um, wherever you'd like. You have cold brew, tea, water, Wi-Fi, printer, pretty much anything that you need to, to do your job. If you need more space like an office or a private desk or you want to have a monitor that you come to every day, we have the option for private desks and offices that you could add on to that package. We, uh, and then the co-working package that you choose is paired with uh, what we call village care, so our child care options. And that ranges anywhere from like $500 to $1,800 for ages three months to four years. And we have a lot of flexibility. You can choose to be here part day, full day, three days a week, five days a week. Uh, it just really gives parents a lot of flexibility and allows them to sort of create their own package. I like to say choose their own adventure of how they want to, you know, work and pair that with childcare. The parents who want to receive childcare here, do they also have to be here during the time their child is here? Yes, we, we ask the parents stay on site while their child is here. And then we also do a one hour lunch break in the middle of the day. So parents spend one hour with their child in the middle of the day and they feed them lunch, they go for a walk, they play in our space. Really the time is theirs to do what they want with. And that also gives our teachers a full hour break in the middle of the day and come back refreshed to spend an afternoon with the kids. So how's it going so far? Uh, it's honestly going better than I expected. I cannot believe how supportive the Milwaukee community has been and the parents that have spread the word and showed up for us. It's been wonderful. Uh, we are It's looking like we're going to be full before the end of the year, which is so much you know, faster than I expected. Um, and we, we even have people that are enrolling for January because they're trying to get ahead of it and, and make sure they, they get in the door. Um, so we're, we're really excited, and I, we were thinking maybe we'd open a second location, and it's looking like maybe we're going to have to. <laughs> I mean, you always hear about how there's not enough childcare spots yeah. pretty much anywhere, including in Milwaukee. Yeah, yeah, and we, we have spots right now, which is great. So if people are looking, we have spots. We also have a lot of flexibility. Um, we have morning and afternoon slots. We can do, so we can do half days or full days. We can do three days a week, five days a week. We have a lot of flexibility when it comes to, you know, what the parent needs to be able to spend time with their child, but also be able to get work done. That's really what we're about is having the flexibility for working parents, but even more specifically working moms to give them the opportunity to be professionals, advance their careers, and also spend time with their children and raise them the way that they want to. Why is that important to you to specifically be catering to working moms? Because I am one. Uh, I have worked full-time for over like 13 years professionally, and I love what I do. I love working. I love I loved starting this business. I love working as a creative director. Um, and I, but I love my son and I want to be around him. 
And I also sometimes don't want to be around him. And I don't want to feel guilty about that. And so Live Village gives me the opportunity to, he's 20 feet away from us and receiving excellent care. And I can go see him if I want to. Uh, and I can stay here and focus and work if I want to. And the pandemic has caused so many people to start working remotely as well. But this model was dreamed up before that major shift in how people work happened. Um, So, but now that's still going on. And yeah, yeah, this was actually a pre-pandemic business model. Um, So, you know, the the fact that there's so many more parents working from home now, um, you know, just gives us the opportunity to help more parents. Um, And we're also seeing, you know, a little bit of a shift. I know some companies are asking employees to come back hybrid and, you know, come back to the office a little bit more. Um, And we are working with parents, essentially, with whatever they need to um, have that flexibility that if they do need to go in the office a couple days, that's okay. You can do a part-time package with us and be here those other days and still have that more office environment, that camaraderie. So speaking of employees, um, how difficult was it for you to find employees? The childcare industry in Wisconsin has been struggling so much with being able to find employees for the amount of pay that they're offering. And it's just this model that, well, right now there's a debate going on in the state capitol about whether the state should be continuing to support um, child care in the way it has during the pandemic. So how has that been for you? Admittedly, uh, we haven't really had issues finding good teachers. Uh, We do, because we operate a little bit different than a traditional daycare, actually quite a bit different than a traditional daycare, uh, it gives us the opportunity to provide our teachers with things that maybe traditional daycares don't. You know, that even just that one hour break in the middle of the day is something that's really challenging uh, in the childcare industry to really like give that solid chunk of time. Uh, we also pay above average, you know, being able to provide two services in one gives us the opportunity to pay our teachers better. We also are so passionate at Live Village about community or community co-working and childcare is sort of our mantra and our teachers are part of that community. So we're committed to keeping teachers here as long as possible. Teacher retention is incredibly important to us. And so we're, we're new. We just started. But so far, we've had little to no issues with hiring teachers. And I think a lot of that goes, the credit goes to just the business model as a whole, treating the teachers as part of the community, as like equals in the space, and giving them a rate that is higher than industry average, really just giving the teachers the you know, respect and care that they deserve. This model of daycare combined with remote work, co-working space, how common is that across the country right now and how common is it in Wisconsin? So across the country, there are a few other spaces. They're mostly on the coasts, uh, but in Wisconsin, we are the first model of this type and so of course the first in Milwaukee as well. And um, Chicago, the location in Chicago is the, the only one in Chicago as well. So we're really spending a lot of like time and effort on bringing this to Midwest parents first. 
and my priority is Milwaukee and Wisconsin as a whole. Kelly Overton is the owner of La Village Brewers Hill, a combined co-working space and daycare that opened in August. She spoke with WUWM's education reporter, Emily Files. never discussed. For families like Meg Kissinger's, that meant a lot of suffering in silence, private and public torment, and maybe paradoxically, a lot of love and a lot of laughs. Kissinger wrote about her family's struggles with mental illness in her new book, While You Were Out. The former Journal Sentinel reporter will be at the Milwaukee Public Library Centennial Hall on September 5th to talk about her new book. She joins me now to talk about it, and a note to listeners, this conversation contains mentions of suicide. Meg, thank you so much for being here on Lake Effect. It's my pleasure, Joy. Thank you for having me. I'm going to start here just because this is really the, the crux of the book. It's even where you start your book. Tell us a bit about your family and the era in which you grew up. Sure. So I am from a, I'm the fourth oldest of, in a boisterous clan of eight kids. We were born between 1952 and 1964. Suburban Chicago is where we spent most of our time with a little brief trip to Connecticut, uh, but for the by and large Chicago area. And it was, you know, a wacky time. It was post-World War II. Everybody was excited about having big families. And um, we had a lot of fun, but we also had a lot of sorrow. And that was born of the fact that there was a substantial amount of mental illness in my family. And those words were never spoken growing up. I never heard the expression mental illness for many years, you know, after I left home. It seems like for a lot of people in that time, that was pretty taboo. Your work reminds me actually a lot of my father's work. Uh, He similarly was a writer who talked about his family and growing up Catholic in Chicago, the way our relationships make us the people who we become. But the one thing that really sets your work apart is how you talk so frankly about mental illness. Uh, I, I don't think my dad could ever go there for himself. I think it's really hard, even now with less stigma for people to go into that space. What was it like really diving into that? Yeah, it was it was intense. It was intense, but it was very important to me. So, you know, Joy, I have been really fortunate to have had a great career. A lot of that, the bulk of it, was at the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel as a reporter. And I was lucky to have fantastic editors there that cared a lot about people who are less fortunate So I was drawn, not surprisingly, I was drawn to stories about people who suffer from mental illness. And I just, I learned over the years, you know, to tell an effective story, to get people to care, you really have to tell the truth. And so when I set out to write the story about my family, I made a deal with myself that it was going to be unflinching. I was going to tell it the way it really is, you know, not to get too cliche about it, but I people who suffer from mental illness are people, they're human beings. And so that comes with all the glory and, and guts uh, that, you know, you would associate with that. So they can be mean, they can be hilarious, they can be generous, they can be stubborn. 
Uh, but they're human beings. That's what I was going after in my book was to show just what a family goes through to, to bear witness to what it's like to live in a family where there is a substantial amount of mental illness. And with that comes both heartbreak and really a lot of joy and tenderness. With this idea of bearing witness, I, I think that was, I don't want to say that you're humanizing your, your family members or, or what have you, but one of the interesting things about the book is that we watch people go from children into teenagers, into adults, and how they become the people who they are. For me, thinking about writing this feels painful. I don't I don't I don't know why that's my instinct, but what was it like digging into these parts of your family, these people who of course you love and you've known their entire lives? It was painful. Uh it was painful, but there was a lot there was a lot of, of joy as well. I, I, I knew that I was gonna have to revisit, you know, the suicide deaths of my sister and my brother and the very painful episode of my brother Danny's criminal past that was embarrassing. It was disturbing to revisit that, but that was, that's a part of our history. And I think a lot of growth came from living through that. And my whole intention was bearing witness, but also to show that growth can happen, that relationships can be solidified. My brothers and sisters are amazing people. They're hilarious. They're loving they're generous. And we had a story to tell. Our, our story was that we lived through this and we found ways now to help each other. So I have an older brother who his depression is quite intense and so much so that he really can't live on his own. He doesn't want to live on his own. So he lives in a group home in the Chicago area uh, for people with serious mental illness. And Jake is, for my way of thinking, you know, really the success story. He, to me, personifies how you can live well with mental illness. Now that's not to sugarcoat it because it's painful. Living with depression and anxiety is a burden, but Jake does it with grace. And by that, I mean, he reaches out and, you know, asks us for help when he's struggling. He'll call and, and say he's not feeling well. And we surround him with support and I, I don't think we hear enough of those stories. We hear, we hear a lot of the tragedy, but I wanted to kind of, I wanted to highlight, you know, where people come together and where there is a happy outcome or a, I don't know about a happy outcome, but there's a, an outcome that is not a tragedy. Let me put it that way. I was about to say, I, I think we have a lot of misconceptions of what mental illness is, what it's going to look like, how it develops. I, I think people believe like, oh, well, you know, you know, when somebody has mental illness, like that, it's very clear, like line in the sand. And what we think of as a good outcome, I think we have very clear ideas of what that is. But you really look at kind of the in-betweens of this and, and the different experiences that people have as they as they have their own journey through mental illness. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, you know, there's no x-ray or blood test. Um, human behavior is erratic. And it's hard to put people in boxes. We give labels, you know, we call people bipolar or schizophrenic, or we throw kind of terms at them. Those are often very squishy. There's, there's still so much that we don't know about the cause of mental illness. 
We certainly don't know much about a cure or even really how to treat people very well. Medication really hasn't improved by and large. There are some exceptions, but uh, medications for the most part haven't really improved in decades. Uh, and so there's, this is, we're really still in the infant stages of understanding mental illness. And, you know, when you look at the history over the, the long sweep of history, you know, how people with mental illness have been treated, it's barbaric. You know, they were thought to have been possessed and they were locked away and all kinds of horrible treatments. And we're doing better now, I think, you know, in the last couple of decades. And I dare say, I think the pandemic you know, really helped people understand what it's like to be lonely and isolated. I'm an optimistic person, but I think that there is more empathy now for people who struggle with mental illness. So I, I have hope that we're coming to understand better. That said, there's still an awful lot of discrimination against people who suffer from mental illness, and we still tend to put them in, in, a, in a corner. Sure. It, it it's a weird thing talking about your book because there's this uh, part of my producer brain that keeps going. Well, you don't want to spoil the ending, the twists, but of course, you know this isn't quite a story per se. It's your life. But I but I wanted to kind of put it to you when when you look back at your life so far, what you've talked about in the book, your experiences with your family. What are the memories that stick out to you? Well, I have a lot of happy memories of my family. You know, I, I'm reading some early reviews of the book and it, and a lot of people talk about how sad this book is or how you know, it's described as heart-wrenching. Many people have noted just how much tenderness there is. And that makes me very happy. One of my favorite comments is some people have said, I wish I were in your family. I love that. I've already invited a lot of people to our next family reunion because um, we have a blast. We have a good time. So, yeah, so my memories are of a lot of love. There was, yes, there was a lot of torment. You know, my mom suffered a lot with her depression and anxiety. My father had bipolar. As I say in the book, you know, hmm, take one person with bipolar and another with crippling depression and let them have eight kids in 12 years. What could possibly go wrong? And there was a lot that went wrong, but there was a lot that went right too. And we have a family text chain and some of us actually have to silence our phone because we send each other these goofy texts all day long. And we're, we're now all in our sixties for crying out loud, you know, but we're still coming together and trying to make each other laugh and hold each other up and support each other. And, you know, as my brother Billy says, I'd rather be with you people than some of the finest people in the world. But we we do, we enjoy each other's company. So I think that's surprising when you think about a family with mental illness to know that there was so much love and, and so much humor. Sometimes the lows help amplify the highs. Yeah, and there were certainly a lot of lows. You know, I, I don't want to sugarcoat what it's like to live with mental illness. It's brutal and it's tough. And the people who suffer are really suffering. I've learned over the years talk to those people, be present for them. It's not easy. They can be quite mean sometimes when you're hurting. You see that with animals, it's true with people too. When they're in pain, they lash out. But I guess then the burden is on us to kind of suck it up and stand with those people and, and try to try to give them comfort because they're our brothers and sisters and we are called to love them. Well, Meg, 
thank you so much for joining us here on Lake Effect. Thank you so much for having me, Joy. Meg Kissinger is a former reporter for the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel and the author of While You Were Out, an intimate family portrait of mental illness in an era of silence. Kissinger will be at the Milwaukee Public Library's Centennial Hall on September 5th to talk about her book with Boswell Book Company. And did you know you can listen to Lake Effect as a podcast? Search for Lake Effect wherever you get your podcasts to download and listen on demand. You can also follow WUWM on Instagram, where you'll find videos and pictures from news stories and Lake Effect interviews. In about 15 minutes, we'll help you soak up what's left of summer with some outdoor dining suggestions. But first, we'll tell you about a Wisconsin doctor known as the Angel on Snowshoes. What was unique about her is that she would make those house calls by way of snowshoes if she could not drive, by way of paddling a canoe, riding with the snowplow driver, and in some instances, walking. That's coming up next on Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. WUWM. I'm Joy Powers. There's a small museum in Woodruff, Wisconsin, that houses the story of a doctor known as the Angel on Snowshoes. In the 1930s and 40s, Dr. Kate Newcomb tended to patients in many communities in the North Woods before there was a hospital in the area. She would travel to her patients by any means necessary, including by canoe, skis, and snowshoes. She also advocated for a hospital to be built in the area, which led to a collections campaign of pennies to try and fund the hospital. Lori Berryman is the president of the board at the Dr. Kate Museum, and Marcia Dowd is a curator. They join Lake Effect Sam Woods to share Dr. Kate's story. Lori, Marcia, first off, can you tell me who is Dr. Kate and what does she mean to the area? Well, she served uh, quite a large area in square miles from the Woodruff area north to the UP border. All of these communities, Boulder Junction, Mantwish Waters, Presque Isle, Winchester, Lake Tomahawk, all of these communities, Lac de Flambeau, the uh, reservation at Lac de Flambeau, all of these communities housed her patients. She delivered over 3,000 babies uh, in in this area. And for most of that time of her practice, there was no hospital here. She had to travel either to Rhinelander, Tomahawk, or Ironwood, Michigan for hospital services. So she started practicing in 1931. We did not have a hospital here until 1954. So all of those visits primarily were home visits. And what was unique about her is that she would make those house calls by way of snowshoes if she could not drive, by way of paddling a canoe, uh, riding with the snowplow driver, 
and in some instances walking. So she serviced people all over the North Woods and her nickname became the Angel on Snowshoes. People just came to know that whatever the situation, somehow Dr. Kate would get there. As you all mentioned, nothing could stop this woman. I also read a story about her rigging uh, skis to her car in order to um, get through the snow to make house calls. Um, really, nothing nothing stopped her, and she ended up delivering over 3,000 babies and serving a, a community of about 7,000 people just, again, by foot or by canoe or just any method, any method available. She grew up in a totally different environment than the North Woods. Her father was the president of the Gillette Razor Company. And so he would not allow her to become a, a doctor. She really wanted to be a doctor from the time she was a young child. But he thought that was not ladylike. So instead, he said she could be a school teacher. So she taught sixth grade in Buffalo School number 54 for a number of years, and then he needed her to come home and serve as his social hostess. And during one of the fancy dinner parties, she was serving a platter of squab, and the she dropped the platter and the squab fell into an ambassador's lap. And the next morning, her father invited her into a study and said she could go to medical school. <laughs> so at the age of 31, she graduated cum laude from the University of Buffalo. And that's when she took partnership in a practice in Detroit, Michigan and then moved to the North Woods in 1922. After the uh, stillborn delivery of her first child, which really was the reason she just was so depressed and disheartened, she didn't wanna practice medicine anymore. And, and thus when the Monaco doctor Torpy called her out, to need help is how she got back to her practice. In addition to Dr. Kate's uh, direct service of acting as a physician for over 7,000 patients in the area, delivering babies, just doing, doing it all, right? She was also involved in advocacy work around public health. Can you talk about the impact that that has had to this day? Dr. Kate found out that a lot of the issues of many of her patients of being sick was due to poor water or water contamination. And so she started campaigns of testing water. Um, I'm assuming sending them to Madison to be tested and um, made sure that that was all pure and clean without runoff. Um, we also had a dairy in Woodruff and they were bottling milk and so she wanted to make sure that was all clean and bacteria free. Uh, in addition, she uh, started going to some of the camps that were going on in the area um, and made sure that the children were all healthy and had had their inoculations. And then if not, she would give them to them right there. She would come in and, and have 
the nurse day or the doctor day. <laughs> and she um, made sure all the kids were healthy and had been immunized uh, against the diseases that they needed to be immunized against. You know, in those days, polio was a, mm. a common disease. In fact, Dr. Kate's Fear. son had polio and mm. was spent time in an iron lung. The other thing she started here in the area, it, she taught the first natural childbirth classes. So she was a, a visionary uh, well ahead of her time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so flash forward now a little bit to 1953, and a group of high school geometry students are looking to find a way to explore the concept of one million, um, like just how big is one million. And what they end up doing is launching a campaign to collect one million pennies to fund the construction or the ongoing construction of a, of a hospital that Dr. Kate had, had started um, raising money for and, and constructing in Woodruff. And this campaign uh, exploded real quickly. Um, they met their goal of a million pennies in less than a year and ended up collecting even more once this story came out. But Marsha, can you tell the story about just how, how we went from, you know, a high school geometry class looking to study the concept of a million to a brick and mortar hospital in the area Dr. Kate was working? So in 104 school days, 17 students at the Arborvita Woodruff High School collected pennies from then all 48 states and all continents except Antarctica. And people around the world read newspaper articles about these students in this small town trying to complete the building of a hospital in the form of collecting pennies. And it became quite a story around the country, literally around the world. We have newspaper articles from South Africa and different countries where this was covered. So to celebrate their collection of the million plus pennies, Memorial Day weekend, 1953, there was a million penny parade in the town of Woodruff. 10,000 people came here to see the pennies which were displayed in the Arborvita Woodruff School gym. And the people who came to the parade then threw in $10,000 more pennies into the pile in the school gym. Thus, the people from the popular This Is Your Life television show contacted Mr. Otto Burek to get Dr. Kate on their television show. And he knew that she would never agree to do that. She did not seek out any of this publicity. So with the cooperation of the Los Angeles Medical Society and the Wisconsin Medical Society, they issued her an invitation to go to Los Angeles to speak at a medical convention. It was all a ruse. She had no idea why Ralph Edwards was picking her out of an audience, bringing her upstage for her to identify these various guests, which included her sister, her son, different people she had helped throughout her, her time in the Northwoods. 
And the end result of that show was he asked for anybody to send some pennies to Dr. Kate Woodruff, Wisconsin to help finish the project. Well, they did send tons of mail here to the uh, conclusion of $105,000. After she was on This Is Your Life, those 17 students were recognized in a Look Magazine article, which we have on display, and a congressional record where they were honored in May 1953. Dr. Kate was written up in Reader's Digest, US News, Woman's Day, and several publications, banking magazines around the US. So it, it's quite a story. And just yesterday at our museum, we had visitors from Italy and Belgium. So this is a story that lives on and we're very proud to keep telling the story. And so today, 70 years on from the original Million Penny Parade, um, you all celebrated the 70th anniversary um, of the parade with the intention of raising money for uh, the Dr. Kate Museum. Um, and so this Dr. Kate Museum, also in Woodruff, Wisconsin, um, is dedicated to the preservation of her, her legacy and her memory. But can you talk a little bit more about, uh, for this fundraising effort, where this money will be going and how it will be used um, for this museum? Sure, we are looking to uh, create an addition to our museum it's uh, to have more room to display um, many uh, uh, previous displays and photos and all kinds of things that we have down in the basement where nobody can see them. <laughs> so uh, we need more room. We have not a bit of room left in this museum. So we're thinking of uh, adding out, going out towards the front of the museum to the sidewalk basically so that we can have more wall space and display space and we also need handicap accessible bathrooms so we, we want to put those in so we've raised $33,000 so far in our uh, building fund and many of those were pennies by the way yeah <laughs> we got a Very lot of pennies yes yeah, yeah. Preserving legacy yeah. in all in all the ways. But we need more. I mean, you can't build a lot these days, especially on thirty-three thousand. So we're looking for uh, additional fundraising activities. We hope to have something in October, and um, we're also looking for any donors that are interested in helping us out. And thanks a million. <laughs> Thanks a million. I see. I see what you did there, Marsha. And Marsha, Lori, I appreciate um, both your your time here with me on Lake Effects, as well as your dedication to preserving um, the legacy and history of such an incredible public servant. Thank you. Thanks. Lori Berryman is the president of the board at the Dr. Kate Museum, and Marsha Dowd is a curator at the museum. They spoke with Lake Effect Sam Woods. And we want to hear your story ideas for Lake Effect. If you have an idea for an interview or a conversation that you'd like to hear on the show, give our Community Connection Line a call. The number is 414-251-8970. You can also submit your ideas at wuwm.com slash lakeeffect. Coming up, we'll look at some of the best outdoor dining options Milwaukee has to offer. 
That's next on Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWN, Milwaukee's NPR. WUWM. I'm Joy Powers. Now is the time to take advantage of outdoor dining before the summer season comes to a close. It seems like nearly every restaurant tries to move their business outside during the summer, but what makes for a great outdoor dining experience? Anne Christensen is the dining editor for Milwaukee Magazine, and she explores that with me now. Anne, thank you so much for being here on Lake Effect. Thank you for having me. So there are a lot of ways to enjoy summer dining in the city of Milwaukee. One of the big things that I think all of us are excited for when it comes to the summer is patios. Yeah, absolutely. Working on our summer guide, there are things that we know we need to cover. And patios is like the number one thing because I pretty much say this every year. I don't want to sit inside a restaurant for three months. I want to be outside all the time. So this year, what we ended up doing was doing kind of a curated list of patio picks by editor on staff. So a number of my coworkers and I, we thought about what is our very favorite patio and why. And so we approached it that way. And then also offered up some new patios or new might be new to people. Maybe it's only a year or two old. So that was another component of our patio feature this year. What do you look for in a good patio? I want to feel like I'm outside, but I don't want to be pestered by too many bugs or I don't want to have the sun in my eyes. I want to have at least some kind of shade going on there. But I also want to be able to see light as well. I want a view of some kind, you know? I mean, I think sidewalk patios can be actually be great if they have sort of the life of the city going on around them. But a patio that's on the water is obviously fantastic. Something that has just a great view of the city. And then, you know, just a patio where where you can have a really great meal too at the same time. Those are the things I look for. What are some of the highlights on this list? Yeah. So one of them is Cafe at the Plaza. That was not my pick. That was our culture editor's pick, but it is such a great patio. Um, If you've ever been to Cafe at the Plaza, it is this little Art Deco cafe and they're just open for breakfast, lunch and brunch. And then they have this sort of hidden courtyard patio and it's, it's sort of enclosed around the buildings and there's all this sort of ivy on the brick and plants and You've got these really nice furniture out there, and it just feels like a little mini oasis. So that was one of them. La Miranda, which is this great small plates restaurant in uh, Walker's Point, they have kind of a backyard patio. Part of it is underneath sort of a pergola that's kind of uh, sheltered from the sun, so you can have that experience. Or you can be out in sort of the sunny area, and so you get the full vitamin D treatment that way. There's an outdoor bar. It just feels, again, like you're transported somewhere other than being just south of downtown. You just feel like it's a little mini escape. 
the place that I mention um, in the article that I I always you know kind of forget about this patio, and then when I go, I'm like, I love this patio. It is again, it's a sidewalk. It is the sidewalk outside of Cafe Lulu in Bayview, which to me has the best entertainment because you're sitting right on this sort of um, intersection between or where KK Kinnikinnick Avenue and Howell meet Lincoln. So you've got all these businesses, you've got traffic, you've got pedestrians, you've just got all this life happening. And it is just such a great experience to just be kind of seated there on a summer day and just, just watch all life go down, you know? So that was my editor's pick. As we're looking at some summer dining options, I think a lot of people will also be drawn to food trucks. Food trucks have become I would say bigger even in the short time that I've lived in Milwaukee. I feel like I see a new food truck all the time. What do you think makes for a good food truck? You know, that's so funny that you mentioned that it seems like they've grown exponentially. And I can distinctly think back a number of years to when there was like one or two and everybody was like, oh, this is so exciting. There's a pizza truck, you know. And now what I think you're seeing is there's so much variety. And what I love in a food truck is getting something that just seems really fresh and kind of kind of, of the moment. And that makes me think of uh, this food truck that I absolutely love called Heirloom MKE, which is like a restaurant on wheels. And their menu is seasonal. They do have have stuff that they always have on the truck, like fried cheese curds, and they have a burger. But they will often do this burrata salad with kind of mescaline greens and seasonal vegetables. So you can get something fresh. So you're not always like, oh, I'm I'm getting something fried or I'm, you know, getting something that's really unhealthy. That's not necessarily the case. I absolutely love this other food truck called Flower Girl in Flame. It's a pizza truck, but it it's actually a trailer. So they carry around their wood-fired oven, and they make these fantastic pizzas in that oven, and they're fresh and hot and delicious. With a food truck, I, I feel like you've got this food that's being made right there, right then. So it just it's coming out fresh and hot and tasty. So I'm looking for that. And I'm, I'm also just looking for a variety of different options. For instance, we're, you're going to be, I think, in the next couple, couple of years, we're going to be seeing more food truck parks. There's one in, I guess that's Walker's Point. It's um, where Zocalo Food Park is. And that is yet another little gold mine because it just has like six to seven different um, food trucks there at any given time. So you've got everything from sushi to burgers to pizza to really great sandwiches to bagels. And one of the most exciting things about food trucks is just how much they've grown and how much how diverse they are now. I am a big fan of the Zocalo food truck, yeah, kind of park. Uh, there are so many different options. A lot of the time when I have friends who are coming to the city, I'll take them there because if you don't want sushi, there are tacos. If you don't want a taco, there's pizza, there's bagels, there's sandwiches. You can really find anything you want. Yeah. Now, one of the other things that really defines food in summer for Milwaukee 
are the many farmers markets that we have in the area. So many of us will head out there, grab some food for later, and you can also pick up some food for that moment. They often have options to eat at the farmers market, and you highlighted actually a very specific farmers market. I did. Um, there is this very new, well, I would say new-ish farm in the sort of inland lake, lake country area. And it's called Stonebank Farm. And it's this gorgeous piece of land where they're growing organic produce. So they have herbs and organic vegetables. And then on the land, there's this kind of beautiful restored old church. And inside of that church is this charming little market where you can buy, you know, some of the things that they picked that very same day, the, the fresh greens, carrots, beets, things like that. And they also have a kitchen there where they're preparing salads, sandwiches, soups, things that are just really fresh with those ingredients that they've grown right there. So it's just like a perfect example of kind of using the fruit of their labors. Um, and I was really impressed when I went out there and I thought, we need more of this kind of thing. We need more of these fresh food sources, these these kitchens that are kind of popping up and, you know, using ingredients that maybe are left over from farmer's market that they can use odds and ends in great dishes to offer to the public. I feel like that is a model that that should move to food deserts. There should be more of this, you know, right in the city of Milwaukee. The the nice thing about their market is that it is open more than one day a week, which the typical farmer's market is maybe one, two, or three days. They have actually longer hours. You can go and get a smoothie, you can get a salad, and you can pick up some fresh produce to take home and prepare some great dish on your own. So so I just thought this was um, just a great place for people that are home cooks, people that just want to eat healthier and support sustainable growing practices. For sure. Well, Anne, thank you so much for joining us here on Lake Effect. Thank you. Anne Christensen is the dining editor for Milwaukee Magazine. We spoke earlier this summer. And that wraps up today's show. Thank you so much for being here with us. I'm Joy Powers. If you missed any of today's conversations, or if you'd like to take Lake Effect on the go, download our podcast. Search for Lake Effect wherever you get your podcasts to listen to all of our shows on demand. Tomorrow on Lake Effect, we'll learn about a program that's training healthcare providers in racial equity and health literacy. Plus, we'll learn about Milwaukee's art scene from the former curator of St. Kate Arts Hotel, who is featured in Visit Milwaukee's Good Things Brewing series. That's all tomorrow at noon, right here on Lake Effect, on listener-supported 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. NPR.